a single mom who works two jobs. She loves her kids and never stops. With gentle hand and the heart of a fighter, I'm a survivor. Wow. And honestly, like Holly Hunter with her accent too, it's very Reba. Yes, it is. Like, it's almost like this is what happens before the Reba sitcom airs. <laughs> like, yes. I'm not fully convinced that Elastigirl is not Reba McIntyre. <laughs> and you can quote me on that. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Poor Unfortunate Podcast, regular Disney edition. I'm Connor Perkins. And I'm Caroline A. Meddy. Welcome to all of our returning listeners. It is so great to be back here with you. And to all of our new listeners, welcome. Thank you for hitting play for the first time. Please also remember to hit follow or subscribe wherever you're listening to the podcast. That way, all of our episodes download to your device. You don't miss out on anything. And at the end of the episode, everybody's going to make sure that we hit five stars and leave a written review so that other people can find the podcast. We're seen in search results, all that good stuff. Oh my God, Connor, we're we're doing it. We're we're doing our we're Disney doing podcast. It, Peter. <laughs> Holy shit! A lot of life has happened. I feel like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So before I ask you, Caroline, what's new? I will just say, <sighs> y'all, we are now off of strike. Yes. The actor strike with SAG-AFTRA and the WGA has ended. Applause. Tentative applause. agreements have been reached. Some have been ratified at this point, but we can talk about Disney things again. We can promote. We can go back to work. All that good stuff. So thank you all so much for being patient with us as we pivoted to some truly wild stuff. (laughs) And we are, are really appreciative that you are back here with us as we get back to what we originally intended to do with this podcast (laughs) and uh, finally finish out season three. Oh my God. (laughs) This is our, this is our final rotation of this season. Is that correct? This is the final rotation of season three. All right. Thank the Lord. Uh, Yeah. So Caroline, with all of that said, what's new? Uh, So much. So um, spoiler alert, we are going to most likely dedicate our tips and tricks episode of this rotation to kind of, Rolling it back on everything that we couldn't talk about over this summer and fall. So <laughs> there's so many films, so much theme park news, all of these things. We will get to it all. We can't tackle it. We've got a big episode today. So we're just going to touch on some super recent things and kind of we'll just jump right back into being up to date and we'll go from there. So most majorly, I would say by the time you are listening to this episode, Wish will have already had its November 22nd release. And maybe when you're listening to this, you will have seen it already. We will surely be discussing this once we have had a chance to see it ourselves. So stay tuned. But yo, right now, I'm I'm digging it. I'm digging it. This Wish, 
Julia Michaels Excellent song. Excellent song. And I love it. It's going to be great. Yeah. Nighttime Spectaculars. My niece loves it. It's fantastic. I appear, I'm not really on TikTok. I've heard there's a lot of TikTok hate happening already. And I'm just like, whatever. I'm just going in there and I'm just going to take it fresh. And, And I've said this to Connor before, but it's just like the premise of this, an origin story about the wishing star is like, I'm so bought in. From that, so yeah. I have high hopes. Yeah. I have high hopes. I, if if nothing else, I love the animation. I love that we're finally blending two D and CG animation together. It's about freaking time that we do that in a feature length animated movie. So I'm I'm excited for that. Yeah, yeah. I'm I like that to- we're just pushing the art form again. Yeah, and I'm excited that now that we're back, that the first thing coming out is like a classic Disney animation. That's a very classic Disney. Classic. Uh, speaking of other films, uh, The Marvels was released on November 10th and is unfortunately shaping up to be the biggest box office flop in Marvel history with a $47 million opening weekend. To me, it's clearly two things. The racism, strike prevented. Sexism. Oh. <laughs> also, that the strike, racism, sexism. <laughs> right, exactly. There, there wasn't as much promotion around it as there could have been if the strike wasn't going on. And there's. So much fanboy hate for a woman-led and directed film. So whatever. Uh, we're mad. I'm mad today. So just like give me some time and we'll get to some more of that kind of thing in a little while. Oh. I mean, it's 90 minutes of like super, super fun times with Brie Larson, who is just serving everything. And uh, listen, everybody slept on Miss Marvel, which is, I think, one of the best Marvel TV shows that they've ever made. I have heard I that as well. I freaking loved it. I love all these ladies. I love oh, all of them. Ladies. Uh, also on the Marvel front, so we have had some changes for 2024 Marvel releases. So they are the following. So Captain America Brave World has moved its release from May 3rd to July 26th. And Blade has moved from September 6th into Valentine's Day 2025. So just thinking about the year 2025 is just like wild to me. Like we'll have already had the first part of the Wicked movie out by then. It's just, I can't even wrap my head around it. Wow. <laughs> oh my we God. Will. Yeah. Oh my God. We'll have to talk. Now that we've stretched our muscles a little bit into non-Disney things, there Listen, might be some other things If you don't we think we're talk not about. talking about the Wicked movie <laughs> yeah. on this podcast, you've got another thing. Yeah. We're going to be talking about the Wicked movie. Yeah. We're going to be at the premiere. I've decided. Thank we you. Are going to manifest. Crash it. Manifest. Manifest. And then big news in the theme parks. World of Frozen is now open in Hong Kong Disneyland. It opened, so we're recording on the 21st. It opened yesterday, November 20th. It features all of these things. Its own version of Frozen Ever After. That's better. Wandering Oaken Sliding Sleighs, which is a little roller coaster. Looks very short. It looks fantastic. <laughs> it looks very short. Have you watched the it looks fan- It's so short. It's very short, but it looks fantastic. It plunges towards the water. No, for sure, for sure, for sure, for sure. Not oh. hating, not hating. It's about the views, it's, baby. It is true, which I kind of like that. Yes. Um, we have the Golden Crocus Inn Restaurant, a Playhouse in the Woods show, Elsa, Anna, Kristoff, Oaken, the Trolls, a band, and more freely wandering the land. There's hair styling for adults, which like, oh my God, oh, oh my God, God I want so it. Good. And you're just in Arendelle. It looks so beautiful. It's gorgeous. And it's just like, oh man, it just is, it's just, it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. And to think that this is in Hong Kong Disneyland and Tokyo Disney Sea is working on this as well as Tangled, as well oh, as yeah. Neverland, as well as Tinkerbell and the Fairies. 
They're getting all of those as part of the Fantasy Springs extension. (sighs) What are we doing here in America? I don't know. (laughs) What are we doing? I don't know. We don't know. We truly don't know. Because meanwhile, in Shanghai, they're working on the Zootopia land. I know. More and more pictures keep coming out of that. And it looks freaking awesome. It looks great. (sighs) We're going to need to do a little world tour. I'm going to manifest that for us as well. Yeah. Meanwhile, we just keep turning the lights down on Dinosaur farther and farther so that you can't see how bad the effects are getting. Stop it. Stop it. I can't talk about it. (laughs) I can't talk about it. Oh, and then just like quick, obviously something we all know in the parks happening right now, Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Party and Jollywood Nights have both begun. I have heard not so great things about Jollywood Nights. I really wanted to see oh. for myself, um, yep. but that didn't work out for this year. So maybe next year once they've figured it all out. <laughs> yep. I think that's, the, I think that's the plan. I think that's what, what okay. I think that's what it was. Great. Well, we yeah. have, well, we, we have already booked up our 2024. <laughs> 2024 so. is booked solid, folks. We're going to be in L.A. Actually, we're going to have to go to one of the Christmas parties in Disneyland because we're going to be in L.A. for the premiere of Wicked. Right, so. right. Or maybe we can even catch the tail end of Oogie Boogie. We'll see. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, Who knows? All of it. <laughs> all of it. We're going to go and do all of it. And we're going to go around and we're going to travel the world and somehow make money. <laughs> and do, and this, do podcast. this podcast somehow. <laughs> and... uh Something we're a big fan of here at Poor Unfortunate Podcast is Disney Happy Meal toys. So we have the Disney 100 Happy Meal toys right now. I am a huge fan of number one, the fact that you get two, and yes. they're in, they're packaged with tissue paper in a little box. I, I'm like, like who what? are we? It's a little present. This isn't McDonald's. This is McDonald's. <laughs> <It> really is. <laughs> this is. Oh. We're going up here. So I don't know. We'll see. I don't. I don't know if they are at McDonald's through the end of the year. Maybe we'll do, we like to do a little, uh, you know, unboxing we'll on do Instagram. A live. <laughs> we like to go live when, when these things happen, yeah. so we'll see. <laughs> uh, so lots more to talk about. We will get to it all during this last rotation, I promise. But like I said, we have a big episode today. We're back to our rant and rave, which are always pretty major, I feel like. So let's get into the episode, shall we, Connor? Let's do it. So as Caroline said, this is our rant and rave episode, and this is our final rotation for (laughs) season three, also known as the actual season that never ends, even though we thought it was season two, but no, it's this one. Wait, am I going to have had two birthdays in this season? Yes, ma'am, you will. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, ma'am. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Remember when we were like, oh my God, season two, we just couldn't end it. No, it was (laughs) this one. (laughs) This is the one. Um, So here we are. We're doing a rant and and rave episode. Caroline has the rave. I have the rant. And the topic that we've chosen for you uh, are ships and not like ships that row on, on, like on the boats, like on the water sort of thing. (laughs) These are relationships. So I'm going to talk about a, a relationship that I don't think we should idolize. And Caroline is going to talk about a relationship that she, she's going to talk about people that she ships. Yeah. So, yeah. I guess I'll just go. The Incredibles. This is not a couple I ship. Woo. Seeing folks be like, I'm Mr. Incredible and she's my Mrs. Incredible gives me some serious ick because this isn't a relationship that we should aspire to be like. It's hella flawed, often disrespectful, and to be frank, Mr. and Mrs. Incredible need a divorce. Helen deserves it. So I'll give you a little bit of history on this. Um, 
The Incredibles. It was released in 2004, and it had a sequel, Incredibles 2, that was released in 2018. Now, this is the thing that, like, really bothers me. The first one was called The Incredibles, and the second one is just called Incredibles oh, yeah. 2. There's no the. I don't oh, like strange. it. strange. Both films were written and directed by Brad Bird. Uh, the producer was John Walker for The Incredibles, and John Walker and Nicole Paradis Grindle for Incredibles 2. Both scores were done by Michael Giacchino. It stars, among others, Holly Hunter as Helen Parr slash Elastigirl slash Mrs. Incredible, Craig T. Nelson as Bob Parr slash Mr. Incredible, Samuel L. Jackson as Lucius Best slash Frozone, Sarah Vowell as Violet Parr, Spencer Fox, uh, and Huck Milner as Dash Parr in Incredibles and Incredibles 2, respectively, and Brad Bird as the voice of Edna Mode. Mm. I'm going to give you some quick plot synopses uh, just from IMDb because I had so many things that I had to say that I couldn't do plot synopses as well. So, <laughs> yes, please. Um, the Incredibles, 15 years after the U.S. government outlawed superhero activities and forced heroes into normal lives, middle-aged ex-superhero Bob Parr receives an offer from a secret organization asking for his help after an AI went rogue. Desperate to relive his glory days of heroism, he leaves behind his wife and kids, unaware of the perilous danger he's put himself and his family into in his vain attempt to relive the past. I like that we're just calling out his vanity here. That's a good place for us to start. (laughs) Incredibles 2. This comes from Kenneth Chisholm, uh, was the author on IMDb. I thought he did a good job. Uh, So here we go. While the Parr family has accepted its collective calling as superheroes, the fact remains that their special heroism is still illegal. After they are arrested, after unsuccessfully trying to stop the Underminer, their future seems bleak. However, the wealthy Dever siblings of DevTech offer new hope with a bold project to rehabilitate the public image and legal status of supers, with Elastigirl being assigned on point to be the shining example. Having agreed for now to stay home to look after the kids, Mr. Incredible finds domestic life a daunting challenge, especially when baby Jack-Jack's newly emerged powers make him almost impossible to manage. However, Elastigirl has her own concerns dealing with the menace of a new supervillain, Screenslaver, who is wreaking havoc with his mind-control abilities. Elastigirl must solve the mystery of this enemy who has malevolent designs on the world with the Parr family and friends key targets of this evil so essentially cheaper by the dozen uh, but <laughs> supers <laughs> okay so there's our background information because i always start with my background information i want to preface this rant by saying that it wouldn't have been possible without the help of my sister shannon uh she's worked with me on this she's offered her perspective as someone who is married with children, uh, something that is integral to understanding this relationship between Mr. and Mrs. Incredible. So, Shannon, just want to call you out right now. Thank you so much for all of your help. So, listen, a lot of the issues in this relationship are coming from Bob's side. So, if this rant feels pretty focused on how he is at fault for a lot of the issues in the relationship, that's only because he is. And this rant (laughs) is. And do I think this is a situation where the two of them should divorce because of animosity between them? No. I actually do think that there is real love between them, but that's only a piece of a successful marriage and for raising kids. Mm. In all reality, I think this whole family would be better off with space for Helen and Bob to find the things that they deserve that ultimately aren't being found with one another. 
I think we can take a look at three specific areas that are not functioning the way that they should and are leading to the erosion of this marriage. So the first area is a breakdown of trust slash communication. So we see this in a couple of examples. We've got secrets and lies, bowling night. Bob outright lies to Helen about his standing bowling night with Lucius where they listen to police scanners for opportunities to relive their hero days. Helen knows what's happening. She's not stupid. But this isn't as simple as lying about a bro night. Bob is risking the welfare of the entire family in these excursions. If he gets caught and goes to jail, there goes the breadwinner. If he gets caught and things can be smoothed over, the family needs to relocate again. Because that's the thing. This isn't the first time he's done something like this, and the family has been relocated because of it. Bob takes things too far with his bowling night, and the fact that he has to lie about it proves that he knows that he's in the wrong. Instead of talking to his wife about ways that he can address the need to feel heroic, he decides to take matters into his own hands and do something that he knows is wrong. This is way past the phase of a white lie. This is the bigger lie that the white lies lead to. And it makes you think, what other secrets and lies does Bob keep from Helen? Another secret and lie, his new job, quote unquote. So Bob has been fired, and instead of telling his wife, who honestly as his spouse has a right to know that they've undergone a major life event that is big enough to report on their taxes, (laughs) instead of telling her, he decides to lie. Again, because at this point, it's easier than talking to the person he supposedly loves and who, as we've seen up until this point in the film, makes herself very available to talk to. We've seen her display patience with Bob at the dinner table when he's zoned out, even with Dash after he's been sent to the principal's office. But instead of telling Helen that he has been fired and has a new opportunity for work, he just lies repeatedly about where he is going and what he is doing. He leaves Helen to keep house and take care of the kids alone while he dips out during the day for workout sessions and job conferences where he is, again, reliving his hero days, something he knows he shouldn't do. I mean, just like think about that for a second. Like your spouse oh my God, leaves you alone <laughs> all day with three kids of very varying mm-hmm. ages so that he could just go to the gym for the day. Please, please, uh-uh. please. <laughs> that's, please. That's no, <laughs> that's a no. After their big blow-up fight that the kids walk in on, Helen is attempting to trust Bob and is genuinely hopeful that he is finally putting his family first. Bob doesn't hesitate to take advantage of this. He doesn't treat his wife as a partner, rather a parent that he needs to hide from. And that's just irresponsible and immature bullshit that no spouse signs up for. And then finally, in Secrets and Lies, we've got Jack-Jack's powers and his difficulty at home in Incredibles 2. The Bob that we see in Incredibles 2 has improved in some regards, but the secrets and lies, they persist, just Mm -hmm. differently. Bob has many opportunities to tell Helen that he is struggling at home with the kids and just ask for advice. Instead, the unhealthy competition that exists within this relationship, and I'll get to that bit a little bit later, that unhealthy competition kicks in and he fibs that everything is going well when it very much isn't. This lie seems like it's coming from a place of wanting Helen to stay focused on her work, but ultimately, it's not helpful to anyone. 
when it comes to taking care of your kids, the kids come first. You swallow your pride and you get the help you need to take care of them the best that you can. By continuing to lie and not even just ask for advice from Helen, everybody's worse off. The kids, Helen when she finally finds out what happened, and Bob who just continues to struggle. The secrets continue even after Jack-Jack's powers are revealed to the family and Bob chooses not to share that news with Helen. Now again, he thinks this is for Helen's benefit that she can stay focused on her work and all of that. But let's be real. This is a big fucking deal. This would be like your infant suddenly speaking in full sentences and you choose not to share that with the woman who birthed said child Mm -hmm. and has cared for it on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Not cool. She has a right to know. In contrast, we see Helen telling Bob what's going on with her, checking her biases when she assumes that he has any inability to take care of the kids and always trying to remain sensitive to his feelings and how he might respond to her enjoying hero work. You honestly couldn't ask for a better person to communicate with as a spouse, but Bob just can't stop with the secrets and the lies. Also in trust and communication, we've got lots of yelling here, and this is not good. Oh, yeah, there is a lot of yelling. Hmm. Yelling usually comes as a result of people feeling like they aren't being heard or trying to assert dominance. And that could not be more true of this couple. Bob raises his voice to assert dominance or put his foot down as an end to conversation. Think about that first fight scene where he yells, let Dash compete and go out for sports. And like, the because he'd be great, like all that stuff. His pride, his ego, what have you, makes him feel as if he needs to have the final word on the matter. On the opposite end of the spectrum, Helen will yell because Bob simply won't listen to her when she speaks any other way. But ultimately, the fact that they both communicate in this type of way repeatedly is not healthy for them or their children who absolutely know this is going down and start to spin out doomsday possibilities for their family as a result. I also just want to note that after Bob thinks that his entire family is dead and then it's revealed that they're alive... He goes very quickly back to his old habits of yelling at them in the RV. So, like, Woof. I don't know, dude. It makes me question your sincerity. And then the last part of this whole trust and communication breakdown is apologies without follow-through. Bob is notorious for the apology without sufficient follow-through. I don't know if I would reduce him to the I'm sorry because I got caught category, though that can be true in some instances. Drag him. (laughs) (laughs) But an apology without reparations or changed behavior is not an apology at all. Bob has a big apology scene when the family is captured in Syndrome's base. Violet, meanwhile, is working on breaking them free and Dash is distracted Helen, aware of all of this, encourages Dash to not interrupt Bob as he says his piece. I think this is actually really beautiful because Helen needs to hear this apology, but even still, she's trying to hold space for Bob to feel his feelings, something a really great communicator does. Bob says, quote, I'm sorry, this is my fault. I've been a lousy father, blind to what I have, so obsessed with being undervalued that I undervalued all of you. So caught up in the past that I, you are my greatest adventure and I almost missed it. I swear I'm going to get us out of this safely if I, end quote. 
Side note, let's also just acknowledge that in this apology, right after saying how he undervalued everyone, he's like, oh, I'm going to be the one to fix this for everyone. And it's right back to like not acknowledging Mm -hmm. that his family can actually contribute and Mm -hmm. saved his ass. Mm -hmm. But no sooner does Bob finish his big apology scene about how he got lost in his ego and whatnot, than he starts pulling this same machismo shit again with Helen in front of the Omnidroid as it attacks Metroville. He tries to push away the family that just saved him because he, quote, can't lose them again. Helen reminds him that the family can be there to support him and he doesn't have to do everything on his own. And so we're right back to doing this apology all over again that we just did five minutes ago. In Incredibles 2, after everything that Bob supposedly learned about himself in the first film, his family, uh, the things he's learned about his wife, he is, again, right back to his old habits of trying to be the hero for everybody. He is right back to not trusting or leaving space for anyone else in his family to support or, God forbid, shine in their own right. He's vehemently jealous of Helen. Mm -hmm. He has to be forced by Winston Dever out of the spotlight to make room for Helen as Elastigirl. This is the same guy who was legit saved from being murdered by Syndrome on Nomadison Island by Helen. All of this supposed growth, everything he apologized for in the first film, it's like it never happened. And it's a pity. (laughs) (laughs) This is really a rant about Bob. I love, I love it. It's it's all true. Uh, Our next big area of, of breakdown and decay and all that shit is uh, a breakdown of support and respect for one another. I think one of the biggest reasons for a breakdown in this area of their relationship has to do with the fundamental difference between Helen and Bob's view of the legality of superpowers. I'd also say that it shows up in trust and communication. Bob's difficulty trusting his wife and need to have the last word is motivated in part by his view that his perspective on this topic is right. End of story. But I think we see it factor in the most in this category. So that's why I'm going to talk about their opposing viewpoints here. Bob is of the view that superheroes should be legal, that their contributions to the safety and protection of society is worth any cost, that superpowers should be celebrated and are something to show off, and most importantly, that anyone who does not share this opinion is wrong. Helen is someone who plays by the rules, acknowledging that you can disagree with rules and still abide by them. Her motivation mostly comes from her instincts as a parent to protect her children and instill in them values of respect. This fundamental disagreement comes out in their first big fight scene. Tell me you haven't been listening to the police scanner again. Bob, look, I performed a public service. You act like that's a bad thing. It is a bad thing, Bob. Uprooting our family again so you can relive the glory days is a very bad thing. Mm. Bob says, reliving the glory days is better than acting like they didn't happen. To which Helen says, yes, they happened. But this, our family, is what's happening now, Bob. And you are missing this. I can't believe you don't want to go to your own son's graduation. (gasps) And this same difference in perspective draws out into the events of Incredibles 2 with yet another fight in front of the kids. This time over dinner, when the kids ask if fighting the underminer was wrong. Bob says no, and Helen says yes. Bob says we didn't do anything wrong, and Helen says superheroes are illegal. Whether it's fair or not, that's the law. 
Bob says, the law should be fair. What are we teaching our kids? And she says, to respect the law. And he says, even when the law is disrespectful. And she says, if laws are unjust, there are laws to change them. Otherwise, it's chaos. So now let's take a look at how the support of one another as a team and overall respect in this relationship begins to break down now that we know that this core difference is at play. Let's first look at parenting. Hmm. This is probably the biggest area of concern for these two as a couple, as it occupies most of their time and has the biggest repercussions. I'm of the belief that parenting and for the kids is probably the main reason why these two haven't gotten a divorce up until this point. So let's go all the way back to the beginning of the first film. Bob, as Mr. Incredible, is being interviewed and at one point shifts the tone of the conversation to something softer. He articulates a desire for a simple life and to settle down with a family. This is something that's true for both his super and his secret identities. This being the case, why the fuck does he want absolutely nothing to do with being a parent? He is constantly putting himself first, not considering the effects that his actions would have on his children and family. They've been uprooted multiple times. He doesn't want to attend Dash's graduation ceremony, no matter how blown out of proportion he may think it is. You just do that shit when you're a parent. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And in the moments that he's around his family, he does little to nothing to actually engage with them. That first dinner scene, his idea of helping Helen mediate a fight between two super children and an infant is to just superhero out and lift the table. He's more interested in having a fight with Helen about her having the audacity to ask for help than being a parent to his kids in that moment. I'm having a hard time giving too much slack to someone who seems, at every turn, to want nothing to do with being a parent and have Helen do everything without a break. All in all, this is a lot for someone who supposedly wanted to have a family. We are fighting the same battles with Bob, the heroism, being more than Mr. Incredible over and over again. And they have plagued this marriage from the start. I'm not so forgiving towards someone who you have to convince to be a parent when they have a teenager and an infant, which means that they are someone who is consciously having more children, despite being a suck-ass dad who doesn't want a parent. No sympathy here. Sorry. Why are you having more children? If you don't like it, why are you having more? No, you don't. And yes, Bob does get better at this in the second film, but this is only because he is forced to. He doesn't want to be the one who stays behind and takes care of the kids. And the only reason he gets better at it is because there's no one else there to share the load. It's fly or fail. It's also fair to say that a major motivating factor for him to become a better parent on his own is out of an unhealthy competition again with his wife. And again, I'll get to this unhealthy competition a bit later. The next thing in this breakdown of respect and support is undercutting and questioning decisions that happens a lot between these two. They're not a unified front and a team, no matter how much Bob tries to say that they are, especially in front of their kids. We have 
countless examples of Bob disagreeing with Helen, especially on matters of discipline with their children and the usage of their powers, like Dash using super speed to play pranks on his teachers. But it even goes to smaller, simpler things, like how to get to the financial district or using Syndrome's remote correctly to destroy the Omnidroid. This is where trust plays a part, too. Bob cannot simply trust Helen that she knows what she's doing. He is constantly second-guessing and questioning her when she's consistently right on the money and has sound reasoning. It's like selective trust because he'll trust her to take care of everything at home and take care of the kids and everything like that. But the second that they're behind the wheel of the car and he's like, how do we get to the financial district? And she's like, take this exit. He's like, no, you're wrong. Mm -mm. Mm -hmm. No, no, no. You don't get to choose. She either knows what the fuck she's doing or she doesn't. And I'll give you the answer. She knows what the fuck she's doing. (laughs) But also this whole undercutting and questioning decisions, it's not solely on Bob. Helen undercuts him right back, even when he isn't there to defend himself. Explaining to the kids that their father is in trouble, she says he either is in trouble or he's going to be, and freely talks about her frustrations with him. However valid those feelings are, and they're very valid, the minute you start undercutting your spouse in front of the kids is when you've got some big trouble. You're destabilizing the home structure that allows for them to develop in a healthy way. Rather than keep going with these digs and constant questioning, it would probably be better for the kids to separate the two spouses and remove this paradox of happily married couple who also doesn't trust one another. Mm. Wow. And then the last part of this section is the unhealthy competition. Competition has always been a part of Helen and Bob's relationship. Being supers, the desire to be the one to save the day, holds a significant amount of influence in their lives. It also becomes a turn-on for the two of them, something that spices things up. In the first moment between Helen and Bob on the roof in The Incredibles, they compete for who took out the thief and exchange some playful banter. It's fun, it's flirty, and the two of them are pushing each other's buttons in a way that isn't trying to put the other one down. But most importantly, they're both playing the game. This changes throughout the course of the film and its sequel. Bob is still trying to compete with Helen in a variety of different areas, as a parent, as a spouse, as a navigator, etc. But the difference here is that Helen isn't trying to compete. She's not playing the game. She's interested in working together as a team, and his desire to be the best ultimately hurts the pair. It's like running a three-legged race, but one of the racers is just running full steam without considering the other person. Someone's going to get hurt, and you're never going to win that way. In The Incredibles, we see this in the RV scene headed into the financial district. It becomes a fight because Bob has to be right. We really see this unhealthy competition in Incredibles 2, especially with the prospect of a super working with the Devers to change the perception on supers. When Winston says that Elastigirl is the best play for them, Bob responds with, quote, better than me? She Helen is visibly upset by this. She's she's sitting right next to him when he says that. And even when Bob is attempting to course correct, he really isn't. He keeps saying, like, you know, and like she's the best of her. 
And it's this wink, wink, nudge, nudge, both saying that they should reconsider, but also implying that Helen is only getting the gig because she's a woman. Oh, my God. I don't like that. It's fucking offensive. And if my partner did that to me in front of a potential employer, there would be hell to pay. Well, that's the interesting thing about all of this is it's like if you take this out of a cartoon and you say that like, oh, this person's spouse said this to them, did this to them. I would be horrified. Horrified. Can you imagine in front of your employer and be like, oh, we're going to go with your wife. And you're like, do you think my wife is better than me? (laughs) No, you don't say that. But even beyond this scene, when Helen is considering the offer, Bob encourages her to take it so that he can then do it better. Fuck that. Leave him, Helen. Yeah. And then even when it isn't about being super and Dash asks for help with learning a new method of math, it's clear that Bob is intimidated. Dash says he'll just wait for mom, and Bob literally says to him, you think your mom is going to know better than I do? In all things, super and not, Bob is so deeply afraid that Helen might actually be better at some things than he is. And he doesn't know how to accept being anything other than first. That's a you problem, my dude. And you need to figure that out for yourself before you try and have a family with someone. It's actually one of the biggest sticking points for celebrity couples, measuring someone else's apparent success as a reflection of your assumed failure. It doesn't Mm -hmm. work. And then our last section here, a breakdown of a sense of self. To be successful in a marriage, you need to know who you are, especially who you are outside of your relationship. This is actually one of the things that I loved so much about yours and Christopher's vows is how you talked about knowing who you are as people and allowing for you to be to get be holy yourselves together and be holy yourselves apart. Mm. I thought that was beautiful. And that's like exactly right on the money. Mm. Both Helen and Bob struggle with their sense of self within this marriage. And so ultimately, it, it might be better for them to just be without one another. So let's take Bob first. Bob feels a need to be super in order to have value. At the beginning of The Incredibles, Helen says to Bob during their wedding ceremony, quote, I love you, but if we're going to make this work, you've got to be more than Mr. Incredible. You get that, right? And he says, I do. This is their wedding vow. (laughs) And one that Bob struggles to (laughs) uphold on a daily basis, including on the day of their wedding, (laughs) because he's late because he couldn't stop being Mr. Incredible. Oh, I, I would have been done right then and there. You're late to the wedding. It's over. Yeah. The entire first film is about Bob's inability to move on from being Mr. Incredible and how that impacts his role as a father and husband. Now, to be fair, the laws around the legality of being a super are deeply unfair and delivered one hell of a blow to a lot of the supers who found a sense of purpose in using their powers for good. So I can certainly understand that it can be difficult for you to recalibrate your purpose in the middle of your life as you are starting a family. But I'll also say, curveballs that make you rethink your life happen to a lot of people. It's kind of like what life is. People pivot and recenter themselves around what is actually most important to them. You find a way to channel whatever it is you lost into somewhere else where you can find fulfillment. We even see moments where Bob does this working for InsuraCare. 
helping people who are getting screwed over by insurance companies. If Bob needs to be super, there's definitely work that would support him in doing that, but he doesn't make any attempt to find them. Other supers like Gazer Beam have found ways to channel their heroism into public advocacy. Clearly, it's possible, but Bob doesn't seem interested in doing the work that takes him beyond his past. If he needs to be super, the best and most obvious place he could find those same heroics and selflessness would be in his family life. He could be a super dad or a super husband. Family is actually one of the few things that has carried over for him in both his personal and super identities. When all of this is going down with the legality of supers, the one thing that actually remains constant is his desire to have a family. But instead of leaning into that, his dwelling on the past and what he has lost prevents him from fully being present in anything else. Helen is consistently building Bob up and offering support. She acknowledges his sacrifices and makes him feel seen as her partner and as a father. Not only does Bob not let himself hear this, but he can't reciprocate it to her. He's so lost in his own journey that he can't see the helping hand or acknowledge that an ally is perhaps struggling as well. Mm. Bob actually is his best self when he is forced to be super in daily life. In Incredibles 2, he has no choice but to become a super dad now that Helen is gone. Without Helen, he has to be completely present with his family, and it makes him a better father and a better person in general. In part because it shows that he has another dimension to himself. So then we've got Helen. Helen... Her sense of self is broken apart because she denies herself personal time in order to just care for her family. She's on the other end of the spectrum. We've got Helen, who has given her entire self over to her family. Now, this may be in part because she is lacking support from Bob, and so she doesn't really have the option of giving less than everything. But still, it's not healthy for her. With Edna Mode, Helen melts down at the prospect of Bob cheating with his heroics and possibly another woman. And Edna has to remind her who the fuck she is and of her own innate power. In Incredibles 2, we get to see Helen finally let herself be her own person and take time away from the family responsibilities that have demanded everything from her. In doing so, she shines. She says to Bob after the offer from Winston... It's nice to be wanted. And it becomes clear how much she wants to be desired and how scarcely she feels that. When she is on missions and allowing time for herself, we see her genuinely happy. I'd even go so far as to say that her experience being a working mom forces her to relax her parenting style. After serving her own sense of self and filling her own cup, She is then able to allow herself to trust her kids more and give them space to be themselves without her. Mm. So, all in all, for every reason you could say that Helen and Bob are a great couple, I could give you two as to why their relationship heads steadily towards the land of toxicity. Yeah. There are sizable cracks in their foundation in trust and communication, support and respect, 
and in their own fully realized individual selves. Through the events of the first film, we don't really see any significant or meaningful change in Bob's behavior. And while at the end of the sequel, it feels like there has been some growth in him, it's as a result of him being forced to be on his own, not by choice. Bob's inability to be anything other than Mr. Incredible holds him back from being a good spouse, a good father, and ultimately finding happiness. He needs the space to figure this out for himself instead of just being told by his spouse or forced into hiding from the government. It's just a shame that this is all after three kids and a marriage to one of the greatest women in the world. Helen doesn't need Bob in order to parent successfully. We've seen that. And she doesn't need Bob in order to live what she would consider a worthy life. I would even go so far as to say an absence of Bob allows for her real self to shine. At the end of the day, both Bob and Helen... They deserve to be their best selves, and their children deserve the best versions of their parents. I think a divorce gives them their best shot. A divorce can be amicable, and I have faith that this one would be. There's a lot of love between them. But let's not say that this relationship is goals, because it's more warning signs to me. Wow. I know, like, so many, unfortunately, so many marriages just like that. Right? It all sounds so familiar to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all of that is happening in The Incredibles. It's, that was great. That was great. Yeah. No, I and see, it's just, like, such a shame because I really enjoy The Incredibles. And I really enjoy Incredibles, too. And I love Mrs. Incredible. I love Helen. And Bob's Bob. I mean, you know. Mm. But when I see, like, I don't know, there's something about, like, when I see people being, like, when they Disney bound in and they're like, oh, I'm Mr. Incredible and I'm Mrs. Incredible. I'm like, I don't feel like that means what you think it means. Because (laughs) when I look at the two of them, I don't see partners. Mm. There's a whole lot of, like, sexism, I feel like. There is. Oh, you've changed this for me. There's, I think it's something that inherently sort of comes out of this whole, like, like new alternate uh retro futuristic vibe that they've given it with yeah. the whole like yeah um mid-century modern sort of yeah. aesthetic and everything where it sort of harkens back to the old days but is futuristic as well and it feels like we've sort of picked up some of those yes their old, vibe is so that yeah very yes, like honeymooners sort point. of thing and yes uh, Wow. It just doesn't fit for someone like Helen. She doesn't fit in that she's body. A, it's she's like, a modern woman. Yeah. Wow. She is. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. She's a strong, powerful woman, and they can be anything. Stay-at-home moms, too, who arguably have one of the hardest jobs that there is. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's my rant. Wow. I felt so <laughs> rusty doing this. No, oh it was God. great. You even like, I was thinking about how you picked, like you tied all those things back together again at the end. I'm like, that's some writing the essay, baby. Oh, no, <laughs> that's called Connor was like, where, where did I go? Come back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't guarantee was. that mine will do that. So sorry in advance. No, I'm so excited for yours. All right. Let's do this rave. It has like a sprinkling of rant in it, but it's a rave. Let's go. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's kind of like the trademark Caroline. Like, there's going to be a little bit of There's always going to be some anger. Yes. (laughs) I love it. Ah, So, my ship that I ship, that is the ship of dreams, if you will. 
<laughs> it's Ray and Ben Solo, also known as Kylo Ren. So just pause. But wait, wasn't Titanic the ship of dreams? It was. So song? it's doomed, which <laughs> they also are. <laughs> <laughs> so let me just pause and say there are going to be so many spoilers here. I am going to spoil everything about the newest Star Wars trilogy. And I have to say, this is my third time watching the final trilogy all the way through. And I love it more every single time. I do too. That's so good. I highly recommend giving them a chance, even if you don't really think of yourself as a Star Wars person. Though I will say being familiar with the earlier films will definitely create an even more enjoyable experience. I grew up with the franchise, but I only recently started paying closer attention to the lore and the through lines of the universe, and I am enjoying it so much, and I think I'm about to be in my Star Wars era, and I'm very excited for it. So all of that said, a quick, quick, quick little background information. I'm not going to do synopses because we're sort of going to like walk through a lot of key moments that will sort of summarize the movies for you. So Ray and... Ben Solo, also known as Kylo Ren, appear in the final trilogy of the Star Wars Skywalker film series, The Force Awakens, The Last Jedi, and The Rise of Skywalker. The Force Awakens is directed by J.J. Abrams and written by J.J. Abrams, Lawrence Kasdan, and Michael Arndt. It was released in the U.S. on December 18th, 2015. The Last Jedi was directed and written by Ryan Johnson and was released in the U.S. on December 15th, 2017. The Rise of Skywalker is directed by J.J. Abrams and written by Abrams and Chris Terrio. It was released in the U.S. on December 20th, 2019. All three of these films had budgets in the millions and box office numbers in the billions, and all three have scores by the genius that is John Williams. Wait, that kind of rhymes. (laughs) (laughs) Have budgets in the millions and box office in the (laughs) billions and scores by John Williams. (laughs) And scores by John Williams. Uh, These films are chock full of stars and absolutely breathtaking performances, but we are here to discuss Daisy Ridley as Rey and Adam Driver as Ben Solo. So, according to Urban Dictionary, you ship two people when you either want them to become an item, kiss, or enter into a romantic or sexual relationship, or all of the above. Usually when you ship someone, you smile somehow when they interact, or you become really giddy when they do something together. So... (laughs) Spoilers, here we go. You went to Urban Dictionary. <laughs> Urban Dictionary, thank you. Um, you. The second half of this definition t- is, to me, just like what I felt to a T about Ray and Ben. We're going to go right to a big spoiler right now, but we'll go back and really dissect it. When they kissed in The Rise of Skywalker, I literally slid down the slippery leather seat <laughs> I was sitting in at the Alamo Draft House in pure surprise and joy. I could not believe that I was getting such a thorough satisfaction of the ship I had in my heart and mind, but was wondering a little bit if I was just imagining. Dictionary.com says that to ship is to take an interest in or hope for a romantic relationship between fictional characters or famous people, whether or not the romance actually exists. Uh, Ray and Kylo, a.k.a. Raylo, their couple name, fit the definition of a ship rather than a celebrated couple as their first clear romantic moment happens in the final minutes of the final film of the trilogy right before, sorry, Ben tragically dies. Their relationship never gets to live in the world. And as evidenced by my Alamo Drafthouse Ascent to Heaven, it was never explicitly spelled out in the trilogy that Ray and Ben were falling in love with each other. Many fans have been very vocal about their belief that the romance was poorly developed, and while I can definitely see lots of room for improvement and for more, 
the nuance and mystery of Rey and Ben's relationship feels like a very modern evolution of Star Wars romance. Many fans are also firmly against a romance between Ben and Rey, and I am also here to tell you why this shit is actually way juicier than many fans want to give it credit for, and in fact, inevitable within the franchise, rather than a hastily made decision on the parts of the writers. Oh, Rey and Ben's kiss was up for a pua and received next to no votes for you all on Instagram. So I'm here oh, to explore shit. the <laughs> multitude of things yeah. for you I have not forgotten. <laughs> So I am here to explore the multitude of things that built up to that kiss and what made it so yum and why Ray and Ben are indeed a match. It comes down to prophecy. (laughs) I'm not over that you went through. I'm not over you went through the story arc. Oh, I didn't. I didn't need. No, 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 no. I didn't need to. I remember. I remember. Oh, shit. I didn't even need to look back. Oh, my God. No. Oh, my God. (laughs) She's been bitter this whole time. (laughs) I have. It comes down to prophecy, hotness, and their overall fit in the evolution of romance in the Star Wars universe. So let's start with prophecy. Ray and Ben's background information connects them immediately. So introductions when we first see these two characters. The first shots we see of both Ray and Ben are them masked in extremely similar looking masks at that. Ben in his Kylo Ren mask and Ray in her desert scavenger mask. We get a strong establishing shot of each of them in their masks with strong and evocative underscoring. This is the first time we hear parts of Ray's theme. And Ben, Kylo Ren, is introduced with a very horn-heavy, classic, dark side piece of score. This film is clearly communicating not only that these two will be the center of the story, but that there is something similar about them. Ray is a scavenger, abandoned on the planet Jakku by her parents when she was a little girl. After being told by Ben at one point in the series that her parents were no one, Rey later discovers that she is the granddaughter of Emperor Palpatine. She is strong with the Force without even knowing what it is at the beginning of the trilogy. She is overcome by visions when she touches Luke Skywalker's abandoned lightsaber and her journey in the Force begins. Ben is the son of Princess Leia and Han Solo. He was initially trained as a Jedi by his uncle Luke Skywalker, until he was seduced to the dark side by Supreme Leader Snoke. Sensing this in Ben, Luke unsheaths his lightsaber one night as Ben sleeps, tempted to kill him, and just as he realizes what he's doing and moves to put it away, Ben awakens and in his feelings of betrayal destroys the Jedi Academy and kills some of Luke's other apprentices. And then, finally, in The Force Awakens, Ben kills his father. Here's what they've got in common to start. Ray and Ben are both apprentices, whether official or not, of Luke Skywalker. Han and Leia serve as parental figures, however short-lived, to both Ben and Ray, with Leia also connecting both of them to the Force. Leia becomes a master to Ray and uses the Force to call to Ben one last time and convince him to turn away from the dark. Both Ray and Ben are direct descendants of the most important lineages in the Star Wars universe. And this trilogy is the story of their decisions to either embrace or reject their family lines. Their lineages also lead to their pairing in the Force, the Dyad, as Ben's mother is the daughter of Vader and Rey's father is the son of Palpatine. So let's talk about what this Dyad means and why it connects them not only in abilities, but in love. So the Force Dyad, what is it? According to Wikipedia, thank you, Wikipedia, 
The definition of a force dyad is when two force-sensitive beings have a unique force bond that is unbreakable that makes them one in the force. This lends the two beings special abilities, such as force healing, even to the point of resurrection of the dead, the ability to interact across light years, complete sense attuning, ability sharing, and more. Though their physical beings are separate, they are one spirit in the Force. In The Last Jedi, Supreme Leader Snoke reveals that he was aware that Kylo had an equal in the light, though he had originally believed it to be Luke. Phrases used in the film to describe the dyad are two halves of a whole and two were made. Though this is not explained in the films, the dyad concept was prophesied in the Doctrine of the Dyad, which was etched in the walls of the Sith Citadel on the planet Exegol, where the final battle of this trilogy takes place, as well as the kiss between Rey and Ben. It held utmost importance to the Sith Eternal cult who live on Exegol. And so I guess those are those bizarre crowds that we see watching Palpatine, those creepy, that whole thing. So let me pause here. I could go on and on about how cool this prophecy is and how it totally gives me chills that Ray and Ben kiss in the very place where their connection was prophesied. A connection like this has never existed before. Like, hello. It's a love connection that really was written in the stars. I mean, I don't know. If that isn't, I don't know what is. <laughs> I know that there's also an argument that exists that their kiss is not romantic, which I find super bizarre and will disprove later. <laughs> but for now... It is important to note that these details related to the dyad prophecy are not explained in the final trilogy. Many fans lament this missing lore, and I definitely agree with this criticism. I understand wanting to keep the dyad itself a surprise until the second film of the trilogy, but I do wish that once it was revealed, we got more information on it because it's just fascinating. So what a dyad is is never fully explained and explicitly, explicitly spelled out in the film. We learn the most about it through what it brings about between and within Ray and Ben. Rise of Skywalker writer Chris Terrio described a dyad relationship as sort of soulmates in the Force. And this, as well as the bits and pieces of information we receive about what a dyad entails, sound a lot like the concept that we have in our world of twin flames. A twin flame connection, like a soulmate connection, is characterized by an intense, passionate bond that forms quickly. While we may have several soulmates in our lives, as the connection of a soulmate doesn't necessarily need to be romantic, a twin flame is a romantic connection and can only be found in one person, just like the way Ray and Ben can only find a dyad connection in each other. According to licensed clinical social worker and clinical director of the Institute for Trauma-Informed Relationships, Angela Amias, twin flame connections often include the following characteristics. An initial intense spark that can feel overwhelming, followed by a quick deepening. The feeling of an inner pull toward that person. Feeling as though you have met before or have always known each other. Passion generated in the relationship flows into other areas of life. A.C. Brown, a psychic channel and spiritual guide, notes that a twin flame relationship will often be challenging, bringing out your insecurities and teaching you lessons. Yogi Amrita Kaur explains that communication with one's twin flame is, quote, the closest thing we can ever get to telepathy. She also says that twin flames come together to achieve bigger things and that their mission is always related to uplifting humanity. So I am going to take a look at the key interactions between Ray and Ben as well as explore some of the abilities that the dyad grants them and connect them to signs of a twin flame connection 
in order to prove that the Ray-Ben relationship was always meant to be romantic in nature. I will also dive into the shipability and hotness of some of these moments because would I be me if I didn't? (laughs) No. Let's start with the prisoner scene. This is in The Force Awakens, the first film of the trilogy. When Ben probes Ray's mind, he immediately senses a connection between them, telling Ray, don't be afraid, I feel it too. Upon entering her mind, he immediately senses Ray's loneliness and desire for a father figure. In turn, Ray is immediately able to recognize Ben's fear that he will never be as strong as Darth Vader. When Ben tries to access the information Ray knows about Luke's whereabouts, she is able to prevent his efforts, becoming the first person that we know of who can resist his mental abilities. It's interesting to me that Ben initially enters Ray's mind to gather information, but is first drawn to what he finds in Ray's most private feelings and desires. Here is that initial intense twin flame spark. Ray's mind and emotions have so much immediate power over him that he's distracted from his mission, also proving that their connection is personal, not simply a powerful force connection. And you think she's hot. She's hot, and they're both, and they're both so hot. <laughs> they're both hot. <laughs> they're both hot. <laughs> Ray's ability to resist Kylo also clearly spells out their even match in abilities, despite Ray's inexperience in the ways of the Force. This aspect of the dyad, the ability to connect to the other half's innermost feelings without ever having met, feels innately romantic. Not to mention that it must be a major record scratch for Ben to have someone just say no when he tells them that they are going to give him what he wants. This is another example of the intense, world-upending spark of a twin flame connection. Ray and Ben fall into an immediate familiarity that lovers often have, preying on each other's insecurities. They both go for the jugular, Kylo mentioning Ray's parents and Ray bringing up his idolization of Darth Vader. It's a pattern that they continue throughout the trilogy and one that is an aspect of a twin flame relationship, the revealing of insecurities. Let's talk about the hotness meter of this scene. What starts as a classic hero-villain interrogation quickly becomes a dance between Ray and Ben. Half of the scene is them silently making intense eye contact and panting. There is a very bald, specific kind of stare that the two share for the entire scene. Ray calls Kylo a creature in a mask. And his immediate removal of his mask in response feels oh my incredibly God, it's intimate. Oh so hot. Incredibly intimate, as it is done wordlessly and introduces us to Ben's face for the first time in the film. For someone like Kylo and the way he uses the costume of the dark side to hide his intense emotional turmoil, this is the equivalent of getting naked. I said what I said. Yeah, no, 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 no. You're absolutely right. And he does it fast. It, it takes Immediately. you by surprise. Immediately. It happens just... It's and just, just like, keep staring it's at her. so quick. Ugh. Also, in, in just in Star Wars in general, people who wear masks, don't they don't take them off. Yes. He's not hiding. Yeah. Yeah, he's no. not hiding anything. No. He's wearing a mask for a different reason. Tell me that's not hot. Ugh, people, please. No, it's so hot. It's so hot. Let's talk a little bit about several moments that include force-wielding. So Ray's connection with Ben allows her abilities in the Force to multiply exponentially. Many fans, many of them woman haters, sorry, not sorry, have complained about how quickly Ray is able to defeat Kylo in a lightsaber battle in The Force Awakens, having never previously wielded one, 
even Snoke shames Kylo for it. It's a Palpatine. But the dyad allows Rey to assimilate Ben's Jedi training through their connected minds. Mm, mm, it's mm. also her first interaction with Kylo that allows her to realize that she has the ability to mind control. She uses it successfully moments after her first connection with Kylo. This feels symbolic of falling in love. Who, when they start falling in love, doesn't feel invincible and ready to try things they've never dared before? This is also an example of passion from the twin flame relationship flowing into other areas of life. Kylo's ability transfer causes a strengthening of force wielding in Rey that literally changes the fate of the galaxy. And Rey's initial passionate rage towards Kylo powers her towards bold, brave decisions, like leaving to find Luke before she is deemed prepared. Although The Force Awakens, the first film in the trilogy, doesn't overtly establish romance between Rey and Kylo, and their dyad connection has not yet been revealed, Rey already begins to call Kylo Ben in that first film. The use of someone's name is incredibly intimate, especially if it isn't the name that others call them by, and it feels like there is something behind it that isn't purely motivated by Rey's desire to bring Ben back to the light. This is also the immediate familiarity that signifies a twin flame bond. I don't even think that she and Ben could even begin to untangle the pull they feel towards one another in The Force Awakens, but The Last Jedi propels their relationship forward in a direction that is undeniably romantic with a few key scenes, largely centered around their newly found Force Bond communication abilities. Ray and Ben begin to appear to each other as if they are in the same room, despite often being light years away from each other. That's the, quote, closest thing to telepathy of a twin flame connection. Can you see my surroundings? Asked Ben the first time it happens. I can't see yours. Just you. Oh, yeah. And there oh. is a very pointed reverb on the just you that feels very Jane Austen, Chekhov, whatever you want to call it. Yes. It feels like an homage to the, you know, that that general love song idea of like, the only thing I can see is you. Hmm. Ray is largely angry during their first few Force Bond conversations, while Ben quietly observes her, often still and staring, focused more on taking Ray in than anything else. During their second conversation, he says, you have that look in your eyes from the forest when you called me a monster. He seems to remember everything she has ever said oh, and yes. is acutely aware of her opinion of him. This isn't a typical conversation between the hero and the villain. It feels very Beauty and the Beast, and it won't yes. be the last time. Their third encounter is where things start to become incredibly intimate. Not only does Ben appear shirtless, we'll talk about it in a moment, but Ray moves from raging at him to wanting to know why he hated his father. You had a father who loved you, who gave a damn about you, she says. This is the first time she has revealed the very real pain she feels over her abandonment by her own parents to anyone. She allows Ben to see her cry. In turn, Ben tells his version of the story of Luke's betrayal of him, despite the fact that he told Ray in anger during their last conversation that he was indeed a monster. He's clearly returning again and again to Ray's view of him, and he isn't comfortable with her seeing him the way that everyone else does. This is also when Ben says what I think is one of the most important things he ever tells Ray. Let the past die. Kill it if you have to. It's the only way to become who you're meant to be. And we will get there. But this is exactly what Ray ends up doing. 
It becomes the central thrust of the rest of this trilogy. And as we'll see, it is through Ben's influence on her life that she does so. I think this is the moment when he changes her life forever, the way great loves of our lives permanently reroute us. Ray calls both Leia and Luke master at some point, and although her relationship is much more mutual with Ben rather than a master-apprentice, he is truly the one opening her up to her abilities and to choices in her life she previously would have never thought possible. A whole new world, if you will. Oh, so let's talk about the hotness meter. Oh, hotness meter. I Bring mean, when Ben appears shirtless during their third encounter, the romantic thrust of this connection becomes um very clear. <laughs> Ray sputtering clearly lets us know that she is into those pecs way more than she would like to be. And there is something that is so hot about not knowing when the person that you loathe but are also attracted to, who metaphorically strips you naked each time you speak to them, will appear in front of you to stop your day in its tracks. I mean, come on. Come on. Yeah. Mm. So now, let's talk about the touch. Ray and Ben's fourth and most intimate force bond conversation ends with them touching through the bond for the first time. But the best part is that their touch is just as intimate as their conversation. They exchange what I consider their signature couple line. You're not alone. Neither are you. This is gorgeous. First of all, because it brings into focus just how lost and lonely these two are, both looking for their place in the galaxy and finally feeling heard with each other. But it's said during this trilogy, I forget by who, that the First Order's goal is to make people feel alone. So how incredible is it that one of its most powerful figures wants to make Rey feel less alone? With that sentiment, we see the beginning of Ben rejecting who he has become, letting the past die. If this were merely a platonic exchange, the touch that follows would not be as slow and intense as it is. Two friends would grasp hands. Ray reaches for Ben first, and before he reaches back, he removes his glove. Oh, yeah. Showing that he wants to touch her as Ben, not dominate her as Kylo Ren. If folks can swoon over Mr. Darcy's fist or Anthony Bridgerton's extended pinky, there is no way this finger touch isn't romantic. When their fingertips finally touch, we hear the famous Force theme from the score. To me, cueing this piece of music with their touch proves that the Force wants physical intimacy between the two of them. Otherwise, we could have heard the theme the first time they connected in the dyad, perhaps their first Force Bond conversation. This music feels like, ah, yes. The force is balanced only when they touch. Another incredible detail is that when Luke barges in, not only do the two not even react at first, but Ray then pulls her hand away as if something very private had been going on. It's not just surprise. Ben, meanwhile, keeps his hand where it is even as Ray retreats. Imagine how much he must want to touch her considering the last time Luke barged in on him like that. Ah. Oh. Hotness meter. Where do I start? <laughs> I mean, first of all, Ben takes his glove off when Ray reaches for him. That is sexy. You can truly fight me if you think that there aren't romantic or sexual motivations behind that. Also, in our acting training, Connor and oh I learned God. the phrase kiss or kill. Yes. Meaning two characters will only be as close to each other as Ray and Ben are if they are going to do one of those things. If Luke hadn't barged in, something tells me that it wasn't going to be kill. Okay. Yeah. And again, the heavy breathing and the crying as they reach for each other, it's obvious. All right, let's talk about the throne room battle. 
When Ray is captured and brought before Snoke, Ben outsmarts Snoke's ability to see into his mind and kills him while leading him to believe he's about to kill Ray. The Praetorian guards attack and Ray and Ben fight side by side to defeat them in what I think is one of the best Star Wars battle scenes It is a ever. kick-ass scene. It is so <laughs> It's so cool. good. Not only do we get to see how completely sick each of their lightsaber skills have become, but we get to see them save each other. What follows is a major divergence in their paths after they have become so close. Renowned relationship psychologist Dr. John Gottman calls bids, attempts a person makes to connect with their partner, the fundamental unit of emotional connection. Ben's most major bid towards Ray happens in this scene. He tells her it's time to let old things die and asks her to rule the galaxy with him. He allows her to see his most raw desire and asks her to share in it, and she rejects him. According to Gottman, when a bid is rejected, the bidding partner internalizes the experience, and it can often lead to defensiveness and the inclination to criticize our partner, and that is exactly what Ben does. He goes to hit Ray where it hurts by bringing up her parents, reminding her that both they and she are no one and then attempts to manipulate her by saying, you're nothing, but not to me. Now, it's important to note that I am not romanticizing this dynamic at all. It does, however, clearly mimic the dynamic between romantic partners and involves more bids and emotional manipulation than would appear in a platonic relationship. What I also find interesting here is that this time, when Ben reaches for Ray, he keeps his glove on. He is trying to manipulate her as Kylo, rather than connect to her as Ben. So her rejection makes perfect sense. Subconsciously, Ray is looking for him to reach for her, not her abilities. It is interesting, though. At this point, Ben especially is aware of their force bond. Is that why he's asking Ray to rule the galaxy with him? Because he knows that together their power would basically be unmatched? It would make sense, but I have this feeling I can't shake that this isn't all that's driving his ask. I don't think he fully understands that he is in love with her yet, but I think that quiet burn is running the show in this moment. Also, after Ray not only rejects him, but makes a move to grab his lightsaber, it would make sense if from then on he was driven to kill her. Not only is she his equal in light who could totally foil his plans, but she made an overt move of violence towards him. This episode will be 10,000 years long if I break down their pre-Palpatine lightsaber battle in The Rise of Skywalker. So long story short, it's evident (sighs) during that fight that Ben is fighting to defend himself, not to wound Rey. The only explanation for this, to me, is love. Hotness meter. (laughs) There's something, maybe I'm just twisted. (laughs) There's something about this whole thing that feels like so sexual like the room covered in red? I don't know. And blacks and reds. Wait, wait, which one? The the um sorry, the throne room battle. The throne room battle. Yes. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um the, the adrenaline surge as they breathlessly meet eyes after the fight. I have the urge every time this fight ends to scream, now kiss, because we feel moments away from it. And they're cuz they're working as a team, but they're also not. It's like it's there's so much gray. Mm-hmm. And we know that anything can happen in the gray. Yeah, oh, we love the gray. We love the gray. Also, the battle has turned the throne room to rubble. And we just get close-ups of their faces in front of a black starry sky and falling flames. It is like dramatic as all hell. 
it's very the cabin. Oh yes, yes. Court of Mist and Fury. Well, it could have they been. They have destroyed the cabin. It could they have, have been. destroyed. And it was the a, and it needed. They needed to have sex right in front of the throne. It but. is. It is as close as you'll get to that scene <laughs> in a Star Wars film. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's get to the big one: the healing and the kiss. Okay. We made it to Raylo's final scene in The Rise of Skywalker. Thank you for bearing with me. You're welcome. The two share some other key moments leading up to this, <laughs> but we simply don't have time, my dears, <laughs> to catch you up. I do. Le- <laughs> Thank you. I love Leia this. uses her remaining life force to call out to Ben as he is in the middle of dueling Rey, distracting him and allowing Rey to impale him with her lightsaber. Overcome with emotion and also sensing Leia's death, Rey heals Ben and makes a run for it. Han's ghost, it's more of a memory than a force, it's not a force ghost, appears to Ben in a beautiful scene. And Ben throws his lightsaber into the ocean, reclaiming his identity as Ben Solo and turning from the dark. In a beautiful parallel, Luke's force ghost gives Rey Leia's lightsaber and encourages her to face Palpatine. When she meets him on Exegol, he reveals that she is his granddaughter and encourages her to use her anger to kill him, as it will allow his spirit to possess her body. And his body has fallen apart, so he needs a new one. (laughs) When Ben arrives, Palpatine senses the dyad and drains both Ben and Rey of their life forces. Rey defeats Palpatine using Luke and Leia's lightsabers, urged on by the voices of the Jedi before her, and the effort kills her. So now let's slow down. Ben drags his nearly lifeless body to Rey, gathers her in his arms, and holds her to him. The pain in his eyes seems unbearable until his expression changes. He lowers Rey and places his hand on her abdomen, closing his eyes, and transferring what is left of his life force to her. We see her begin to breathe. What follows is just a full hotness meter breakdown, so let's just go. So many emotions pass between these two that I don't even know if I can fully track them all. When Ray sits up, there's a small lip quiver from Ben, and he stares at her looking near tears. They look into each other's eyes for several breaths before Ray says, Ben, smiling and putting her hand to his cheek. And let me tell you, the look in his eyes, that's acting, people. That is love. That is is emotion. He looks simultaneously at home and like he's going to burst into tears. They continue looking at and holding each other for a moment longer than feels natural before Ray kisses him. When they pull apart, we see Ben laugh for the first time. And then he dies. I don't think a description could ever properly capture the pure being and presence of these two actors and these two characters. But I did it so that you can objectively hear what's happening between these two. And it isn't friendship. It just isn't. This moment is very Belle and the Beast. It is you. Are you going to tell me that Adam kisses Belle to thank her for bringing him back to life, but he doesn't mean it in a romantic way? Do you hear how ridiculous that sounds? Tale as old as time, all that shit. That's just about friendship. Yeah, right. Exactly. So that's just to, like, dispel the rumor that that was a kiss of gratitude. No. You know how how you and I kiss when I'm very thankful. That yeah, you... right on the mouth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so oh. stupid. You don't gratitude kiss with all your friends? Oh. Okay, so first of all, I have seen folks comment on social media that this kiss and the Raylo romance in general are random. I have taken all of this time to point out several other times when this kiss could have happened. 
This was a buildup, not a U-turn. And though I absolutely would have left my body whenever their first kiss happened, I'm willing to wait for it if it means we get it in the moment when Ray and Ben have done what they aim to do. Let the past die and see each other, even for a brief moment, be who they were meant to be. In its ultimate form, a twin flame connection uplifts humanity, and Ray and Ben uplift the galaxy as their love allows the continuation of the Jedi. They meet and connect instantly. They help each other grow. They offer each other solace while also pushing each other's buttons and preying on each other's insecurities when they feel the other pulling away, and ultimately turn their power like life itself into life itself. And isn't that the very definition of love? So yeah, we've confirmed that Ray and Ben are in love and that their dyad connection is love itself. I mean, Daisy and Adam were always on set with each other when the dyad connection scenes were being filmed. Adam even flew out to Ireland to stand off camera and act opposite Daisy despite having nothing else to film in that location. Do you think that this kind of money and effort is going to be invested for a duo that isn't going to be the love story of this trilogy? So No, just for friendship. Yeah. So why are so many people haters? First of all, I think a lot of the Raylo bashing online is from a very loud minority. But we all know that Star Wars fans can be toxic, to say the least. And many have twisted some words from J.J. Abrams to mean that Ben and Ray are not in love. I also think that Abrams majorly wishy-washed when he answered this question because he was sick and tired of the wild vitriol coming from fans after the rise of Skywalker. A fan asked if he thought of Ray and Ben in a romantic context since The Force Awakens. <laughs> and what he said is, yes, while trying to explain that the connection between them is insanely multifaceted, which I agree with. He said, there is as much of a brother-sister thing between Ray and Kylo Ren as there is a romantic thing. So it's not like literally a sexual romantic thing, but it's more like they're bound together in this movie in a crazy spiritual way that, again, felt romantic to me. I mean, if you follow the logic of the statement, it's he really just said there's romance, but not literal romance, but romance. Yeah. (laughs) And as much as I wish he just said what it sounds like he wants to say, that these two are romantic, but also have an aspect of their relationship that is something else because of the dyad, I would want to get the fans off my back as well. So to do that, let's address some of the other hate. Complaint number one, the romance was poorly written and tropey. Could I always use more romantic development in any film? Yes. Could I always use more of the phenomenal chemistry between Daisy Ridley and Adam Driver? Of course. But if you really watch these three films with the knowledge of the dyad, you'll see that there are threads and breadcrumbs constantly being left for us to pick up. And despite this, the kiss still made me gasp. That's good stuff. Mm. I saw a YouTube commenter say that they wish the whole rest of the new trilogy could have been like Kylo Ren's cold-bloodedness in his first scene, claiming the character was ruined after that. I could do a whole rant on this. The pew-pew-pew toxic male Star Wars fans who just want the movies to help them live out their violent male-led fantasies and also just can't stand that The Last Jedi is a woman. For them, there is no room for the incredibly restrained, emotionally complex scenes that we get from this new villain, and they can keep their lame-ass opinions in the past. And that's all I have to say about that for now. Mm. The Ray and Kylo relationship is also a pattern we see in other wildly successful stories. Without a spoiler, mind connection. 
scrappy girl who becomes incredibly powerful, dark, mysterious guy. Sounds like characters we might know from the Court of Thorns and Roses series, right? They are timeless romantic archetypes and one we haven't seen in Star Wars, so the fit is right. There is also a lot of Raylo fan fiction out there. While you could argue it's because the fans didn't get enough of the couple in the trilogy, I also think it's because this pairing is hot. It works. There's enough there there to inspire people. Not to mention, a piece of Raylo fan fiction became so popular that it became a published freaking novel. It's called The Love Hypothesis by Allie Hazelwood, and I don't think it's even the only one. <laughs> it's wild. Oh my god. If you look at the Raylo hashtag on social media, which obviously before now I have, <laughs> you'll see lots of amazing romantic art featuring Ray and Ben with, with a caption something like how it should have ended. I think a lot of the frustration people feel is that we don't get to see Ben and Ray really get to be in love and we want it because the blueprint is delicious. Major complaint number two, Ray should be with Finn. First of all, I really resent the fact that just because you dislike a female character's choice of love interest, that she should just automatically be with the other available male. Ew. Not to mention that Finn has known Ray for an hour and is already asking her if she has a cute boyfriend. Ew again. A lot of things that Finn says to Ray have also been misconstrued as romantic. He tells her at one point, you looked at me like no one ever had. But what Finn is referring to is the fact that Ray looked at him like he was a good, trustworthy person. He used to be a stormtrooper, not someone anyone in the galaxy is likely to look at in a positive light. The look he's describing is not romantic. A lot of people also believe that when Finn says to Ray that he has something to tell her as they're being swallowed by quicksand, that he wants to tell her he loves her. J.J. Abrams has debunked this revealing after the release of Rise of Skywalker that Finn wanted to tell Rey that he is also Force-sensitive. Finn and Rey don't know each other all that well. It's incredibly touching that Finn is always looking out for her and wanting to protect her after they are separated pretty shortly after meeting. But that's the sign of a great friendship. And friendships are so sacred in the Star Wars universe. Mm. Not only is that something beautiful on its own, but the steadfastness of Finn's friendship and the gray often troubled and problematic romance between Ray and Ben proves to me that the romance is real and meant to be. And that's because of the role love plays in the Star Wars universe and how Ray and Ben evolve it. Friendships are first and foremost what Star Wars is about. Yes. Romance comes secondary. And romance is usually very messy I, in and, Star I, Wars. and I love that. I love that. Yeah. Because ultimately, they're not going to focus on making it all that explicit because... These aren't romance films. Right. They're, right. Adventure, they're adventure films. Right. Adventure films are about friendships. Yes. Yes. Exactly what you just said. Star Wars universe romances have never been simple, completely healthy, or a forever thing. Anakin and Padme and Leia and Han's stories end sadly. And Rey and Ben slipping through their fingers before it can even begin is the perfect poignant evolution of tragic love in the franchise. Padme and Anakin prove that holding too tightly to love is destructive. And Leia and Han show us that love cannot always survive loss and grief. So as, as much as I want to see Rey and Ben together, there was no way that was going to happen. But their complicated emotional relationship fits the Star Wars prototype perfectly. So anyone saying it was a mistake hasn't connected the dots. 
Each Star Wars romance is also very of its time. In the 70s and 80s, we have Han and Leia, both outspoken and rebellious with a cool factor. Long-term commitment doesn't ever seem like something that would come naturally to them, and they drift apart after the loss of Ben. It honestly makes sense for such a fiercely independent and guarded couple. Then we have Anakin and Padme of the early 2000s, the era of rom-coms. We get a sweeping love theme, a forbidden romance, and two young, beautiful, smart people at its center. The love turns to dangerous obsession on Anakin's part that turns him to the dark side and ends in him helping cause a pregnant Padme's death. So where do you go from there? I think what was done with Ray and Ben is the perfect choice. We get a little bit of each couple that people love so much. We get the independence and fierceness of Leia and Han and the forbidden, dangerous aspect of Anakin and Padme. But what's really incredible is that Ray and Ben's trilogy is really all about their connection. Their connection is its center. Though his love for Padme creates Anakin's journey, the prequel trilogy is really about the creation of Darth Vader, and the original trilogy is about Luke's connection to the Force. This trilogy is about the Dyad and its power to save the Jedi. Most beautiful of all to me, Ben spends so much time trying to become the next Vader as Kylo. He fears he will never live up to him. But he is able to do the one thing Vader couldn't. He saves the person he loves. Rey and Ben's journey is the mirror opposite of Anakin and Padme's. Rey helps bring Ben to the light, despite him offering her, like Anakin did to Padme, a path she can't follow. Rey and Ben allow love to bring them to the light when both of them could have easily chosen the dark. Is their relationship imperfect? Absolutely, and we don't even get to see it stand on its own two feet. But what a way to end the Skywalker saga. Love bringing about good. It opens up a whole new possibility for what the Jedi could become, as it is previously ruled that Jedi cannot form attachments. But Rey proves that love can set things right. If confronting fear is the job of the Jedi, Rey does that tenfold by turning outdated beliefs on their head and confronting her fear of herself through her relationship with Ben. And isn't that love? But Rey and Ben have done exactly what Ben urges her to do in The Last Jedi. Let the past die. They both resist their respective lineages in order to become who they were meant to be. And they wouldn't have been able to do it without each other. We are what they grow beyond, says Yoda. And Rey and Ben, they really do grow beyond what existed before them. With Star Wars, George Lucas set out to create, in his own words, a modern fairy tale. I can't think of something more fairy tale esque than two lonely, lost descendants of villains who find their strength and power within each other despite being set up to be sworn enemies. Ray and Ben are sexy and interesting and smart and new. Daisy and Adam are perfect in the roles. And I am also just so glad we have a new Star Wars couple tagline that isn't, I love you, I know. Now we have, You're not alone, neither are you. And that, that's beautiful. Wow. <laughs> I agree with all of it. I I mean, I personally thought that Kylo was trying to trick her with the romance at the beginning, but then like looking back, I'm like, no, it it makes sense that it's there. Like even down And he doesn't even like, know. Like I don't think they understand it for a very long no. time. Yeah. And I think JJ Abrams was I understood what he was saying where he's like 
their romance is a part of it, but that's not. There's a lot happening their, in there. We're yeah. not going to reduce their relationship down to just romance yes. because that's not just what it is. And I'm like, that's right. Agree. The Skywalker saga is about fate. It is. It, it is about lineage and family and things like that. So, what I think J.J. Abrams is trying to say about the relationship with Ben and Ray is that their relationship exists in fate. Yeah. Wow. Oh my God. I'm so glad that you did that. That is one of those raves that you've been wanting to do for a long time. Yeah. You've always been intimidated because you haven't really. I haven't gone touched Star Wars. Into Star Wars. No, yet. no, I have not. I'm really glad you did that. I'm really glad that you did that. It was I, time. And I, and you I just it. like, I, it, it's such a metaphor because like part of the reason I haven't touched it is because it's just like the, the fandom is intimidating and I am. Yeah. I don't know. That's and that's the funny part is like I've been made to feel like I'm not a fan, even though I grew up with it. Like I was obsessed with Padme yeah. Amidala when I was younger. Like when we could make any art project in class, like I would make her. But I was always made to feel like I didn't get it. And I get it. Yeah. OK. <laughs> no, you get it. You get it. Because there are different things to get people. Yeah. Like, that's the thing. That's the great thing about art is like. People find different ways in and people respond to different things. And that's so true. Okay. So true. Mm. Yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> we're back. <laughs> we're back. We're back. We're back. Guess who's back? What a hell of an episode. Um, <laughs> well, if you liked what you heard, please remember to hit follow or subscribe wherever you're listening to the podcast. And everybody, this is that time. You're all going to hit five stars and leave a written review wherever you're listening to the podcast or if you're on Spotify and it says, hey, what did you think of the episode? Tell us what you thought and we'll see it. We we see everything. So thank you very much for taking the couple seconds that it takes to hit five stars, leave us a review, send us a couple words. It really does so much to help us find other people, especially at this time where our listenership, because of the strike and everything, it's our consistency is off. So we're rebuilding our consistency. So things like that really go a long way for us right now. So thank you very much for taking the time to do that. And same goes for following us on social media. That's just super helpful in getting us into people's feeds. If you see something on social media from us and it's maybe a clip of the episode, just send it to somebody that you think might like it. You never know. So we are at Poor Unfortunate Podcast on Instagram. Facebook, Threads, and TikTok. So you can find us in any of those places. Uh, And if you want even more Poor Unfortunate podcasts in your life, please join our private Facebook group, The Poor Unfortunate Fam. We have been keeping in touch with the fam members during this strange, strikey time, just like keeping everybody updated with where we were at. If if an episode was going to come out, we discussed a lot of non-Disney things too. So I think you will fit in no matter what you want to talk about. You're going to find a friend in that group. And we would love to meet you. Yeah, we you got over 100 people in there now. Yes, now we're over 100. It's so cool. We're over 100 Yes. Now. And uh, and Connor and I just would just love to, you know, connect uh, faces to names and get to know you a bit better. So please, please come join us. And as we enter the holiday season, if you are looking to share your love of Poor Unfortunate Podcasts with the world or with friends, we do have merch available in the Poor Unfortunate Shop. It's poorunfortunatepodcast.com slash shop. And if you are looking to order merchandise and have it arrive in time for Christmas, the last day to make sure that your order is placed is Sunday, December 10th. So 
Make sure that you get your orders in. Then if you want to make sure that you have it by Christmas time. Do it. Do it. It's such a good gift. Yeah. Sweatshirt. It's a great gift. The sweatshirts are, are great. Hats. <gasps> water bottles. Everybody Please. needs a water bottle. Yes. And as I always say, it does take us a little bit of money to keep the podcast up and running and coming to you. We do have a PayPal account. It's linked in our episode description and on the website links in our social media accounts. Truly, anything that you have to spare goes a long way for us. It could be $1, $5, $10, more than that. It could be a one-time donation. It can be a monthly donation. It all just goes right back into the pod, helping us keep it free and ad-free for the most part. And to all of our monthly donors, thank you so much for all of your support, especially during this time where I know that we have not had much coming out for you. Mm -hmm. It helps us keep going. It helps us... uh, also maintain everything that we have there so that you can go back and keep listening to episodes. So Mm -hmm. thank you for your support. It is not unnoticed and we appreciate every single thing that you do for us. We do. We do. All righty. Well, that's everything for this episode. So until next time, Beluga Beluga Savruga. Savruga.